announcements I wanted to make uh, before we went on with the rest of the message. Uh, one, next week, like I told you before, we're answering your questions. I have stacks of those things on my desk. i um, already been going through them. Some of them are duplicates. Great questions. You feel free to keep them coming. They're in your bulletin. You could just write, jot them out as you uh, feel led and go ahead and throw them in the offering plate and I'll get those. Um, two, last week I said if you're bashful, you may not want to come to church today. And more of you are here than you were last week. And so <laughs> apparently none of you are bashful, which is great. But no, that's not the, the other announcement. The other announcement is um, Stepping Stones for Women has been a, about a six or seven year partnership with us. We've worked with them um, we love them, they love us, we have a great relationship, but they are changing their business model. And the, for those of you who don't know, Stepping Sons for Women use the houses that we have on our property to do a recovery ministry for single moms. Now, they're changing their business model and therefore are relinquishing the house back to us, which is actually, a, it's a good thing for them and it's a good thing for us. Um, we're, we're very excited for them. They'll still continue to use our property on Tuesdays, um, and we're still going to continue to partner with them and do ministry in powerful ways with them. Um, but the good part about it for us is that our finance committee recommended and our board voted um, to ask Paul and Beth Swanson, our community life pastor, to move in. Um, we're taking this relationship to the next step. We said, would you move in with us? They said, yes. <laughs> Clearly, that is not what we want to put out in our regular relationships. But I just thought in the light of relationship series, we ought to make light of that. Anyways, um, they are moving in. We're very excited for that. Paul will be doing a little bit more. Elena's excited about that too. We're going to fix up the house a little bit, so we're just thrilled. I think I said three or four times this week to, to my wife, I said, sweetie, I'm just so excited the Swansons are moving in to the Weatherford house. And so we're going to have another ministry uh, a professional on campus here, and so we're very excited about that. And I wanted to let you know that, and we appreciate the Swansons and all that they have done um, in ministry here. So if you've not met them, get to know them. Uh, great people. Um, so here's sort of where we've been in this series. And, um, and today, you see the sermon title. Um, it's on your bulletin. That's exactly what we're talking about. Um, so, but here's sort of where we've been in the last four weeks of our series. Uh, we've talked about how God views marriage and how God wants us. I really believe God wants us to have new marriages with the same spouse. God wants to transform each of our lives through his son, Jesus, so that we can have a brand new, brand spanking new relationship with the same person we said yes to a number of years ago. We believe that even if you're on the track to marriage, God wants to do some transformative work in your life. Two, um, we talked about the things that make us crazy in relationships. We talked about responsibilities between men and women and how sometimes when we take our God-given responsibilities and we shove those off on other people, that makes us completely crazy. After that sermon, did any of you go home to your spouse and say, you're, you're giving all your responsibilities to me? Uh, none of you are raising your hands, but I got some text messages, let me tell you. Um, it, it happened. Uh, we talked about last week three different views of sex. Um, sex is vital to a healthy marriage, and it's biblical. It's, it's all over the Bible. We're going to talk a little about it today. We talked about three different views. People view it either as God sometimes. In other words, this is a view fueled by pornography. 
that sex, your body is the altar, or your bed is the altar, your body is the sacrifice, and what you do with your body is actually a, a form of worship. And Romans 12.1, we talked about all that last week. We talked about it as gross. There's been some um, traditions, there's been some, uh, especially the Christian uh, tradition has been to say that sex is gross and should only be used for procreation. Anything, other words, even inside marriage is a sin. And that is not the case at all. But then we finally talked about it as a gift that God is giving to each person for the day of their wedding. And how God wants to be present inside your lives. And God wants us to keep our marriage beds pure because God is literally present with us. We also talked last week about the fact that God does not give us a standard of beauty. He gives us a spouse. We're going to dig a little bit more into today. But we really believe that God gives us a spouse, not a standard of beauty. So if your standard of beauty is something on an ad or something on TV or something like that, we really believe that your standard of beauty needs to fundamentally change to your wife or to your husband. So let's dig into this today. I wanted to tell a quick story by getting into this. In 2003, when I got to this church, we had a youth all-nighter. I have grown to absolutely hate youth all-nighters. They are events made by Satan himself. They're absolutely terrible. I love you guys. But staying up all night... Everybody's grouchy. People end up getting hungry at 3 a.m. And then, I mean, they even get more grouchy. They're tired. They throw things. They say things they wouldn't normally say. They do things they wouldn't normally do. Um, Things like that. I hated youth all-nighters. At this point, I still loved them. So we had this giant youth all-nighter. We had probably a team of like five people cooking us breakfast. We had, this is our biggest one ever. We had about 40 kids go to like boomers and do different things. And we had and it was really cool. And then until the morning when we said, hey, would you guys clean up? We've got trash bags just full. I mean, there was trash cans full of stuff, okay? And um, one of the, the volunteers, I'd never seen it done this way, but it was tasty, made pancakes with cooking oil. They put cooking oil and they allowed it to boil and they poured the batter right over it. They were amazing. Um, that's one of the things I remember of the food, oddly enough. But there was a bunch of cooking oil dumped into a trash bag. So when I asked the kids to take it out, they took the trash out. I didn't think anything of it. As I'm cleaning up and locking up this half of the building, I'm walking out to my car in the back, and I've got to be the only one here, and I see these two giant streaks of oil that somebody had taken the trash bags and just walked them and dragged them all the way across the floor, all the way back through the parking lot, all the way back to our dumpster. And I just thought, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm the new guy. There's oil all over the place, and it's Saturday morning, and Sunday's tomorrow, and I'm in trouble. So later on, I went home, I took a nap, I came back with my parents' power washer, and I think, no big deal, I'm going to get this knocked out, hour tops. Five hours later, completely soaking wet, I finally got those things off, those stains off the ground a lot of soap and things like that. But something I learned in the process is that I didn't really love my church until I began to serve it. I didn't really like, I mean, I I liked church. I liked my kids. I liked the property. It was nice. I didn't really gain an understanding for loving everybody here and what they put into it and, and things like that until I began to serve it. 
Now, how did that change me? Afterwards, I'd pick up things off the ground, pick up trash, pick up cups. I'd take my power, power washer back every now and then and spray it down again. And, and you see things that are out of place, I put them back because you invest your time and you serve. And it's not something that I was compelled to do. I wasn't like, no one stuck a gun to my head and said, go power wash that. It was something I just realized I needed to do as my fault, and so I needed to clean it up. And I served my church in that way and learned that it changed me. Standing there five hours later, completely soaking wet, full of soap, just like hands all pruny and cold, that I learned to love my church through serving it. And I think that's a lot of the same way in marriage. We learn to love our wives. I mean, we know what it means to love our spouse when we get married. I mean, we kind of know. But then when you go through seeing a baby born and, and your wife can't move for two weeks after and you've got to help her out, or, or maybe there's been a personal injury or a sickness or something and you help your husband out, I think you learn a different level of loving them once you've served them. You learn a different level of selflessness and humility once you've served them. And something I want to talk about, the Bible is absolutely clear about, and then we're going to get into the stuff that might make you bashful. Um, and our slides and, and on your Bible app and, um, and, and in your um, printed Bible, um, we're going to be in Proverbs for a minute here. Proverbs chapter 6. Um, verses 16 through 17. And I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And he goes on and on. Haughty eyes, arrogance. It's all about me. Proverbs 8.13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. Evil behavior and perverse speech. I mean, it's like, if we were to ask the question, what does God think about this? He says it right in Scripture. I hate it. I hate arrogance. I hate pride. I hate evil, evil behavior and perverse speech because God is a God who is holy. And he hates that piece of arrogance that's within us and wants it to die so that he can put his in there. God wants it completely killed off. Proverbs 16 Verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. How would we say that God feels about our pride? How would we feel that God feels, how would we say that God feels about our selfishness, our haughtiness, our pride? Think God hates that part. Loves us, absolutely loves us, but wants that part to die so that we will treat other people with the same kind of love that he treats us with. So I think that part of our own selfishness is something that God just literally can do without. Pride and arrogance says, I can do it. One of the things that um, I learned was humility while I'm power washing the floor. And then in my relationship with my wife, one of the things I, I learned, I, go into, I went into marriage as a selfish person. And I wouldn't have, I didn't think I was that selfish, but I went into it as a selfish person. I love how he laughs. I mean, everybody thinks they're not selfish when they get married, but then they realize they get married and they realize how selfish they really are. And, and when the disciples asked the question, Jesus, what do we do to be great? What is it that we do? I want to sit on your right hand. I want to sit on your left hand. What do we do? And the response was to serve. Turn with me to Mark Chapter 10, real fast. 
Starting in verse 35, this is the request of James and John. And they're talking to Jesus. And it says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zedebee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want, to do for, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wouldn't that be nice to walk up to Jesus and say, Hey, we just want you to do whatever I want. Verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? He asks. 37, They replied, Let us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Do not know what you're asking. Jesus responded. Now let me help us understand this. When at this time, 2,000 years ago, when these disciples are talking to Jesus and they say, we want to sit at your right and at your left in glory, this is a political statement. This is not saying in heaven because they didn't have the concept that Jesus was going to go to heaven with his father. They're talking about when Jesus overthrows the Roman government and he needs a minister of defense and a minister of finance or a VP and a secretary of state. That's what they're talking about. They're saying, give us the best positions that you have once you take your, your going. They thought that Jesus was coming to lead this massive rebellion. I mean, that's what they thought he meant by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. They thought, great, there's this other kingdom that's going to come and throw out this kingdom, and we're going to sit in glory. We're going to overthrow Herod and his kingdom and his throne and all that stuff. But Jesus simply says, you do not know what you are asking. And then he says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In other words, he's referencing the cup of his suffering, his death. We can, they answered. They still didn't know what they were talking about. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit in my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whomever, whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We live in a service economy. We live in an economy that, that really, there's, there's very few real goods that we still have in our, in our um, economy. I mean, there's still, the, there's still things that we manufacture and produce, but by and large, America is a service economy. We get paid for our expertise and for what we know and how to do that. And so I think we have a weird concept of service. And in fact, we understand it as we pay somebody to serve us, to to meet that need, Um, whatever need it is. But Jesus doesn't just call us to be servants for people at work, the people that pay us, or random strangers you meet at work. God calls us to be servants to our spouse. God calls us to serve them in ways that nobody else can. And when we learn to serve our spouse is when our selfishness begins to die. And this is really the most important part in marriage. I mean, there's a lot of really important parts. There's kids, there's in-laws, there's money, there's, there's jobs, there's where you're going to live, there's you know, things like that. But really, fundamentally, when it comes down to it, if our own selfishness is still intact, there's always going to be that block in marriage. You're always going to feel distant from your spouse when our selfishness 
is intact. And in our selfishness, the selfish person takes a hold of the servant heart and turns them into a slave. They, the selfish person takes the servant heart and turns them into a slave. And we've seen that in marriages where people feel trapped. You see that in marriages where people feel like in their, um, they feel like I do all of this and what does my spouse do? Nothing. And I have to do this or else I'll get yelled at. That's not a mutually serving relationship. Guys, God does not give us indentured service that, servants that live with us, do the dishes, do laundry, clean, take care of the kids, and have sex on a regular basis. That's not what God gives us. God gives us a spouse. And ladies, God did not give you husbands in order to mow the lawn, bring home the bacon, and do a thousand chores. Now, that's what we do out of serving each other. But when it becomes, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that, or else I'm going to do this, this, and that, then there's this selfish block that's in the way. Serving somebody, this is the best understanding. We were trying to teach junior high servants what it meant to be servant leaders. And we were on this campus with them for three years, and one kid said, okay, you're a servant, tie my shoe. And I responded, that makes me your slave. What makes me a servant is seeing your shoe is untied and tying it. And so oftentimes we have this relationship in marriage where you need to do this, you need to do that, and it's to serve, you need to serve me. But service comes from the heart and service comes freely given. And this is what Jesus wants. I mean, when, when we ask, what we, when, when the disciples ask Jesus, what do I have to do to be great? He simply said, serve each other. That's it. Serve each other. Can we apply that to husbands and wives? Absolutely. What do you want for a great marriage? Serve each other, right? Absolutely. Serve each other. Once, um, like I said, our spouse really does have a way of revealing how selfish we really are. And not, I mean, the good spouses don't do this in a way of like, see, I told you you were really selfish. It is just sort of almost done in this casual nod, like, you get it now? Um, I know my wife helps me understand that, and not in a rude way. She, I, and in fact, that's one of the things I absolutely love about her, is that she just kind of shows me, you see what you just did. And I go, oh, wow. She's gentle about it. So you might be thinking, how does this have to go with that, the topic of sex that we talked about last week and are bringing back into this week? Um, it goes actually hand in hand. Because selfish people are selfish lovers. Selfish people don't give themselves to each other. Their um, sex is just for them. And the Bible actually talks about this. And I know some people, they're like, wait a minute, what? The Bible talks about this? Yes, absolutely. And, and we dealt with this in church last week, that the church somehow has demonized sex, but within marriage is really this incredible gift that God has given so we've demonized sex and made it gross in our history, but we never have dealt with the opposite end of that. I want to show you a quick chart. Do we have the chart up? Is it up there? It'll be up in a second. Here's the chart, 2008. This is um, married persons on the, there's three rows of numbers, married persons, married Protestants, and married Catholics, and the topic is frequency of sex. Now, I know you guys are thinking we're in church. Why are, why are we talking about this? But let me just show you a couple things. Now, close to 17% of people 
almost close to 20%, have sex less than two times a year. Now, there's, there's times. There's medical issues. There's um, the birth of babies. There's a lot of things where married couples cannot give, come together. But where you don't come together, you begin to turn into selfish people. There's smiling happening on the front row over here. They're intrigued. When married couples don't give themselves to each other selflessly, you begin to lose the bond of unity that was created at marriage. Remember how we talked about um, what happens in the brain when sex happens. There's dopamine. There's little um, neurons that fire and that actually create this substance inside or release the substance inside your brain that bonds you to this other person. And remember what God says back in Genesis chapter 2, the two became one flesh. This is how God designed us. And the reason why I want to highlight this is because the church has done so much in the past to demonize sexual relationships. And we're, by the way, let me be clear. We believe that sex is only to be used as such a powerful thing that is only to be done within the confines of marriage. But we have we have so demonized it that people have literally said in their marriages that they're scared to have sex or they don't know if they should do this. Or there's, I read a story of a couple that were married a year and asked a pastor when they should consummate their vows. Really? <laughs> but the, 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 uh, the idea is, in our selfishness, we build up things like anger. When things go unresolved in our marriage, we could take the chart down if you want. When things go unresolved in our marriage, the frequency of sex begins to go down and down and down. And when that happens, you begin to feel distant and distant and distant. And when that happens, you begin to maybe sleep in separate bedrooms or maybe you, know, you begin to barely talk to each other and then you're just a person that you're living with. And we want to absolutely say that that is not at all what God intends for your marriage. Now, if you're in that frequency category of one to two times per year, the, the application of this message is not go home and jump in the sack. Because there is probably a lot of repentance that needs to happen beforehand. Probably a lot of confession. Probably a lot of, I'm angry with you because of this. That needs to happen before we get in to that. So people, when people stop coming together for what God has given them, they begin to drift apart. Folks, this is biblical. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says this, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And he is talking about this within the confines of marriage because it was a question that Paul was asked by the church in Corinth. And so he responded, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. In other words, there's some people who use that as a weapon or a reward. Don't do that either. Flip with me to the Song of Songs. We're going to go through. This book is one of... Um, the most celebrated books and also one of the books that's hidden the most in the Bible. Too many people do not want to dig through this book, but it is literally this love poem that is so celebrated. It's about 3,000 years old and a celebrated love poem in Israel's history. I want us to understand just how great 
this book is. It's an account of two married people. The word God really isn't even in the book, but some commentators believe that God has this line right after they get married where he says, let them eat and drink of their fill. In other words, referring to let them begin to now have sex together. Some commentators believe that's a line for God, but that's just some commentators who really knows. There's a little bit of division on that. Rabbi Akiba in the second century said this about the book, No day outweighed in glory the one in which Israel received the Song of Songs. Jewish boys are not allowed to read this book until they're 18 because there are some very, very intimate details. We know by reading other poetry by the same period and through studying some of the Greek and Hebrew and all the different words um, that, some, that most of these words are actually coded references to this couple making love. And so we're going to go through what some of this looks and what it looks like to be selfless. Because when you begin to be selfless in all the parts of your life is when marriage really starts to get fun and when marriage really starts to get exciting. And even in the bedroom. So there are two ways to understand this book. One is the story of two lovers and their relationship. Actually, there's like eight ways to understand the book, but I'm going to give you two. One is the story of these two lovers and their relationship and how they've come together and how beautiful it is. And the other is that it's this analogy of how God loves his people. And I think that we can look at it really in both ways. But today we're going to look at it as a story of these two people and how much they love each other. And let me say that if you're part of the 20% of people who rarely have sex a year, the research also shows that you have a more difficult time being friends, discussing deeper issues, and feeling con- connected in your marriage. So read the Song of Songs to each other, and uh, we think we might solve some of that. So this is a story between man and woman, one, five, and six. This is the woman talking, and she says this, How right they are to adore you. Dark I am, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the dark, like the dark in the tents of Kedar. Like the tent curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyard. My own vineyard I have neglected. And she's talking about her body. She is neglected. At this point, she is dark and tanned, and she thinks that's ugly. In our culture, we were like, oh, wow, did you go to the tanning booth today? That looks wonderful. Um, but in their culture, it meant you were a slave or a servant, and you worked outside in the fields, and it meant that you were actually lower class than other people. And it was actually considered ugly as part of the culture. So this woman says her deepest, most innermost thoughts, I'm ugly. I feel ugly. And husbands, you've probably never heard your wives say that. You've probably never heard them say, I feel like this makes me look fat. You've probably never heard it. So this might be the very first time for you because I'm sure nobody here struggles with insecurity. That was a, you could laugh because people do struggle with it. It's a joke. People do struggle with, anyways. This woman struggled with insecurity and was abused at the hands of her brothers. Caused her to do all kinds of work and she felt neglected she felt horrible. And the man, that her, her husband, absolutely serves her in this way. Turn with me to chapter 4. I mean, and he says it right afterwards, but this is one of the things he says. 
chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes, are, your, your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is a flock of goats descending from Mount Gead. Yes, right? How many times have you said that to your wife? But this is quite the compliment. She has just revealed her insecurity and said, I feel like a piece of trash. I feel like the common servant in the fields. And he says, you know what? Look at your eyes. They're like these, they're like these doves. In other words, they're so peaceful. Your hair is like this flock of goats descending from Mount Gead, which was a compliment at the time. Um, it would have looked beautiful, I'm sure. Dark hair. And he doesn't just say these things. He's not just trying to jump into bed with her. He's not just trying to get it on. He is her friend. He is her husband. He is her lover. Those are lines that are repeated over and over and over in this book. My husband, my friend, my lover. I am deeply insecure. How many of you guys, when your wife says, I feel fat in this, have taken that as an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you about Weight Watchers. No, you don't do that, right? No one does that. Although, I don't see him here, but I will tell a story about Herman Codnier because he's not here right now, and I feel like if you don't attend church, I could tell stories about you. That's not true either, but he's, told, he's, he's said before I could use this in a sermon, Janine giving birth to their baby. Uh, I think first or second uh, I don't remember which one it was, but Janine, his wife, is giving birth to her baby, and she is yelling and screaming, and he goes, oh, come on, suck it up, right? <laughs> Things you don't say to your wife, like number two. And we laugh about this now when we talk. But anyways, when your wife comes to you and says, I mean, he, you could take this as an opportunity to say, yeah, you know, you really should look better. But his standard of beauty is his wife. His standard of beauty is not some model in a magazine or on the internet. His standard of beauty is his wife. And so he says, look at you. Look at those eyes. Look at your hair. You are absolutely gorgeous. And, and this guy keeps going. Check this out. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Each shorn. Don't laugh. This is beautiful. Coming up from the washing, each has its twin not one of them is alone. In other words, you have all your teeth, and to me, that's just so <laughs> sexy. <laughs> it's beautiful. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of pomegranate. In other words, he says, he makes a direct reference to her skin color because she is so concerned about the brownness of her skin. That he says, look at your temples, they're like halves of pomegranates. In other words, they're red, they're glowing, you're beautiful. This is what a servant lover says to his wife. Your neck um, is like a tower of David, built with the elegance. It hangs a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. I know, just romantic stuff. Your two breasts are like two fawns of a twi twin fawns of a gazelle. That browse among the lilies. I know. Again, romantic. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. In other words, he's saying, we will make love all night long. That's really what he's saying to his wife. 
all beautiful you are, my darling. This is verse 7, one of the most important verses, I think. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Guys, this is one of the sexiest things you could say to your wife. It truly is. You're beautiful, my darling. There's no flaw in you. This is the kind of intimacy God wants for our marriages. The selfish lover points out the flaws. The selfish person points that out. Oh, yeah, you're right. I guess you, I, I guess you, you are a little dark. Yeah, why don't you uh, go, I don't know. I don't know what you do if you're too dark. Why don't you go inside for like two weeks and, and get rid of your tan? Um, but the selfish person points out what they want. But this is what God had given the husband. And he just says, I love you for who you are. I mean, the verse in Genesis chapter 2 that we talked about, they were naked and they felt no shame is literally what this is referring to right here. There's no flaw in you. You are perfect, my love. Does she have flaws? I'm sure she does. Absolutely. We all have flaws. Each and every one of us. And marriage is not about ignoring the flaws, but it's about serving each other in them. And that's what this couple did. In our selfishness, we name the flaws of our spouse. Right now, with the state of some marriages, there's no way you would look into each other's eyes and say, let me tell you, you're beautiful. There's no flaw in you. You'd probably say, you're arrogant. You're a jerk. You're terrible. What you said to me was unacceptable. You know, we would begin going down those lines. But the couple that loses their own selfishness and allows their heart to be so filled and infiltrated by Christ gives themselves selflessly to their spouse. And I see this as one of the chief problems in marriages, is the selfishness. First, we got to remember 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, there's this litany of love poems, or love statements. One of the things that says, love keeps no record of the wrongs, but delights in the truth. Now, when we think about that with our spouse, how many times could we look into their eyes and say, there's no flaw in you. Because in our head, we've got that little Rolodex of flaws. The little things that just make us tick. The little things that kind of drive us crazy. In serving our spouse, God wants us to get to a place of intimacy and friendship so that we only have eyes for our spouse. So that we can look at them and say, they're beautiful and there's no flaw in you. Let's keep going to verse 8. We're even going to look at another chapter, so hold on to your seats. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top Sinar, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of the leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and your fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. This line, you are a garden locked up, a sealed fountain, a spring enclosed. This line is referring to her sexual life, her purity. So people who are not married, teenagers, 
people who are just single in this life, one of the greatest things that you can do to serve your future spouse is to remain a garden locked up, is to stay pure for them as a gift to your future spouse. It's one of the greatest ways in which you can serve them is to give yourself fully to them and them only. Now, there's times, and we even got a question about this that we're going to respond to. There's times where, where people have, have just bought into the lie that they should be having sex before they're married and, and, and just trying it out and things like that and, and have felt the consequences of that. And we're going to deal with that a little bit next week. But what I have to say to you is that there is, there is nothing that God won't take you back for. There's nothing that God won't wrap his arms around you for and, and just whisper how much he loves you into his ears. So there is forgiveness and redemption for all of that. But one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your future spouse is that of your purity. And he's saying, in fact, I mean, Solomon here, we believe this is Solomon talking, um, but Solomon here is saying, um, you know what, this is one of the most sexy things about you is that you're a garden locked up for me and just me. Verse 13, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, although we all know that he really said it, nard, right? Anyways, you guys weren't here at Easter. Don't know the joke. Verse 14, nard and saffron, clamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense trees, with myrrh and aloes of all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of... Water, flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Notice how he's so complimentary to his wife. Selfish people are not that way. He gives her this gift of seeing what she looks like through his eyes. That's the gift he's giving to her. He's saying, you know what you look like to me? This is what you look like to me. And what we're about to see next the Song of Solomon is the wife serving her husband in a very intimate way. The last verse in chapter 6, how beautiful, I'm sorry. Why would you gaze on me, the Shulamite, as on the dance of Manhinium? Now the dance of Manhinium here is really interesting because it's basically a private strip tease that she does for her husband. We get to see this little intimate detail he describes his wife, and she is literally in the privacy of their own bedroom, stripping for him. And we go, how can this be in the Bible? We believe that God wants us to have free, frequent intimacy with our spouse in order to stay, remain connected and bonded over the long haul. 3,000 years ago, um, when this book was written, they believed the dance of Mahinium was really um, a reference to where Jacob met angels and talked to them in Mahinium. And so what he's really saying is, you are like an angel to me. The way that you're dancing is you're like an angel to me. Chapter 7, how beautiful are your sandaled feet, O prince's daughters. Your, your graceful legs are jewels in the works of a craftsman's hands. So 3,000 years ago, wearing open-toed shoes was very, very erotic. I'm not kidding. That was like taboo. You didn't do it unless you were in the bedroom. And so she's wearing sandaled feet, allowing her feet to be shown. And he is saying, you're sandaled feet. In other words, you're doing this just for me. And the reason why, I mean, is that men are visual. And in their, in their intimacy life, she's doing things that she knows pleases her husband. 
So manner of visual. This isn't be, to be used, by the way, as biblical grounds to get your wife to do things, by the way, guys. Not at all. For them, this is how they served each other. He spoke to her to give her confidence and intimacy, to build that relationship. And she danced for him because he loved it. Because she was his standard of beauty, because in the world, she looked ugly. Your navel is of a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns of a twin gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes, the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Radimim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Anybody who says your nose is a tower, it means you've got a huge nose going on there. I know what that's like because I've always been told I have a big nose, which apparently is sexy, I guess. Why do I even say some things? Your head crowns like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is held captive by his treatise. How beautiful you are, how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm, and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your, of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. What he's saying here is, I want to climb the palm tree. Reference. The only way to fertilize a palm tree is to climb it and fertilize it by hand, with, fertilize the fruit by, with, with, by hand. <laughs> so what he's saying here... <laughs> as my face glows red, is that, I mean, he, he is talking to her from the feet all the way up to the head, and he says, I love you. I want to make love to you. And the reason why I tell you this is not to show you that, like, the Bible really is sexual. I mean, that's part of it. There's some sex stuff in the Bible. But also to show you that this is a beautiful interaction between husband and wife that we get to have a picture of biblically. And that God certainly allows this kind of thing within marriage. God wants us, to, I think, to have free and frequent sex with our spouse so that we would grow stronger and deeper in love with them all the time. Let's pick this up. Well, we're going to pretty much end with this. May the... Should have ended 20 minutes ago. May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over his teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover. This is the woman speaking. Come, my lover. Let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, to see if their blossoms had opened, to see if their pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes sent out their fragrance, and the door is... Every delicacy, both old and new and old, I have stored up for you, my lover. And so what she is saying is, again, this picture of I'm a guard locked up, sealed. I've stored up my love just for you. Selfish, when we're selfish, when we just want to feel pleasure, love doesn't get stored up for somebody. Love is about me. But when you're married, sex and love and intimacy is always about the other person. And that's what's going on here. God, way, way in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells us to be servants of each other. And it, all, it goes all in every single area of life, all the way into the bedroom. 
because God wants us to have strong relationships with our spouse. So he allows this book to be published in the Bible. So um, for a moment, consider this woman is a God-fearing woman who marries as a virgin. The Song of Songs tells us that she initiates sex frequently. She talks about sex frankly, and she enjoys it freely with her husband. Consider for a moment how radically free this woman is. Not only this account of her speaking um, to her husband, but also stripping for her husband. This is 3,000-year-old literature. Now, back then, 3,000-year-old literature in, in Judaism, this was not necessarily kosher to write. But think about how radically free she is to be able to say, I enjoy my husband in such ways. But many wives would think that they're somehow dirty for acting this way. So why do we go over this? Two, Two reasons. One, husbands serve your wives, wives serve your husbands. That's part of it. But when you freely serve one another, it plays out into every single aspect of your life. This man served his wife by speaking to her where she was, insecure, feeling ugly. And the wife had, confident, had confidence because she knew how good she looked in his eyes. The wife served her husband visually by dancing for him and kept herself. She served him by keeping herself locked up as a garden spring, as a river, all that stuff as a, as a garden just for her husband. Now the application of this message is not for you to go home and say, woman, dance. That's not the application of this message. That would be the wrong application. But the application of this is to say, maybe we have been sitting here for the last 40 minutes and just realized our own selfishness. Realized how much sex is about me, marriage is about me, life is about me, and I want it my way. Maybe you've been sitting here realizing life is really just about me. Jesus wants that part of you to be emptied. He wants that part of you to go away. And I believe that if you're that way, you need to repent to to your spouse. You need to say, honey, I've been this way and I'm sorry. I think that we really need to do that. And that other application is if you're single here today, the best way to serve your future spouse is to be a garden locked up for them praying for your future spouse. Knowing that one day you're going to give yourself to one person for eternity. So what's a couple of years of purity? Let's pray. Jesus, I really believe that you want to do some incredible things in marriage. And God, I just thank you for putting books in the Bible like the Song of Songs. God, in our culture, in our conservatism, in 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 our bashfulness, we tend to just shy away from this kind of stuff. But God, you've given us this beautiful picture of intimacy between husband and wife. And so, Lord, as we think about that, as we begin to see what you have done through Scripture, and God, as we we think about the way that you just told us, if you want to be great, you need to serve. Lord, I pray that you would change our marriages. God, there's people here today who need a relationship with you, God, because they need to stop being selfish. God, and I'm one of those people. Lord, I consistently ask that you take selfishness away. So maybe you're here today and you just need to pray, Jesus, 
take my selfish desires away and lead me to serve my spouse. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.